Good morning, HP. To get us uh, into the message this morning, uh, I have a little story to share with you, and a little, I guess, um, grace from you before I share this story. This is possibly the most embarrassing story of my life. But if it requires me to reveal my weaknesses that some may know Christ, so be it. About a year ago, about a year ago, um, I was uh, cleaning out my car. At the time, I had like a, a, a Toyota 4Runner. It was a fun car. I really liked it. My kids loved it. They named it. Whenever your kids name your car, that's a good thing. And my kids named it after the TV show cartoon character that it looked like. This, this, if you have little kids, you know the show Blaze and the Monster Machines. My kids saw my car, and they're like, that's Blaze! And so, so we fell in love with Blaze. Blaze was this great little car. And um, I, uh, one day I noticed as I was cleaning up the car, some little brown circular specks sitting on, like, the passenger seat. And I looked at them. I was vacuuming things up, and I was like, if I didn't know any better, that looked a lot like mouse droppings. And it was too much of a thought for me to like actually engage that thought. You know what I mean? Like you've ever had like one of those things where you're like, I can't deal with this right now, like let's just figure this out. So, so I just vacuumed them up, moved on with life and just imagined nothing was, was wrong. And um, it was fine, and, except for two days later, I went and put my, cu- my coffee cup in the cup holder and once you know it, there were like little specks there too. And I, I look at the ceiling. I'm like, is it falling or something? Like, is it just deteriorating? And not, I put it on my mind. Went to the, look, the, the corner, you know, uh, vacuum place. Vacuum them up real quick. And I was like, oh, it's fine, whatever. And it, this went on for an embarrassingly long amount of time. I mean, like days turn into weeks, turn into a month of this happening. And uh, I, one day, got a new insurance card in the mail, and I had to put that inside my car like you do. I guess you're supposed to do that. And um, So I went to my car. I opened Blaze up. I opened up the glove compartment, and to my shock and horror, it was like a mouse had taken every shred of fabric in my garage and, sh- and pulled it out to the car and built for itself the nicest nest I've ever seen in my life. I had manuals in this car going back, you know, almost 15 years, because that's how I roll. I roll in, in old cars. 15-year-old manuals that were shredded all up and paper made into confetti. And, and, and inside of there, there was all these nice little, my, my suspicions were confirmed. I had a problem. I had a problem. Four weeks of battling, I hadn't won. Now I found the source. And I was angry. I felt violated. I felt betrayed. Blaze, how could you let this happen? You're supposed to be a superhero. You're supposed to be protecting us. And so I did what any rational dad does. I got gloves on. I brought a garbage can out there. I took everything in one fell swoop and dumped it in the trash. And I said, there, that'll teach that mouse. And I took in a brand, brand new, totally clean glove box. I put the insurance card and I closed the door and I said, good luck now, mouse. The next day, got in the car. What did I do? I checked the glove box, and my card was still there. But this time, there were little gifts left on top of it for me. (laughs) It's a very unholy movie with Bill Murray in it, with a gopher. (laughs) 
I can't mention the name lest you go watch it and, and be offended by my taste in movies. But that's what happened to me. I felt like I was going crazy. I, I, I hopped in the car. I said, this means war. And I drove right to the hardware store. But something you need to know about your pastor is that um, mice test my sanctification. If you're not a church person, uh, here's what that means. Uh, mice are my kryptonite. Mice, when I see mice, I almost have to hand in my man card. You know what I mean? Like, like I got to give that thing up. People are like, whoa, dude, like chill out. Like, like mice really bring out the worst in me. It's almost like it was a little demon living inside my car that I had to exercise. And so I drove to the hardware store. I went to a tractor supply company because that was the most manly hardware store I could think of. I said, certainly, if anybody has a way to catch mice in a forerunner, it's them. And I went to the back of the store where they have the mice mouse traps. And I was looking around, and all they had were these, like, spring-loaded, flat Victor traps. I was like, well, that won't do. I don't want to look at the thing when it's dead. <laughs> a sales associate walked by. He saw me standing there for about 20 minutes. I said to me, sir, do you need help? I said, no, I can handle it. It's just a mouse. He goes, well, if it's just a mouse, take this. And he gave me the spring-loaded trap. And I said, no, I don't want that. So I went to Walmart. <laughs> Did you know at Walmart, they sell a variety of traps? Humane traps, death traps, all of these. One's like a little villa that the mouse walks into a little hole. It just never escapes. Uh, one is like the spring, and then there's another. There's an in-between model. It's really cool. It's like a shoe that the mouse walks in at like the toe and then a little lever springs it up into see spikes and you never, here's the thing, you never have to look at the mouse. It comes with a little handle, you just pick it up and you throw it away. I bought two. <laughs> I bought two, I um, put one in the glove box, I put one at the base of the glove box on the floor because I didn't know how many I was dealing with. When there's one, there's a million, isn't that right guys? Like, there's never just one mouse. So I bought two. Picking out, I might get lucky. And uh, I, I went inside, I took a cheddar cheese stick, cut that thing up, because I read somewhere mice, mice like cheese, and I put them in the little hole, and I said, let's see what happens. The next day, no mouse. The next day, no mouse. On the third day, on the third day of this epic adventure, the third day, I opened up the glove box, always, always like this, a little like wary of what I was going to find. And there on top of the trap were mouse droppings. <laughs> and I checked the bait house and it was gone. <laughs> to make matters worse. I put the key in the ignition and I turned it on and all of a sudden the dash lights and my dome light didn't work anymore. So now not only was this mouse stealing my cheese, but it was going to cost me a ton of money to start rewiring the car. It's one thing to take my cheese, it's another to take my cheddar, if you know what I mean. <laughs> drastic times call for drastic measures. I went back to Tractor Supply Company. I did this to the man who first tried to sell me the trap. I bought a bunch of these. <laughs> you know the type. This is, this is the original rat trap. I bought a rat trap so you could see it, but I bought a bunch of little ones, the mouse traps. And, um, and this is the better mouse trap. Did you know this? There's never been, that's a phrase for a reason. 
They average, uh, estimate, 750 million mice a year get caught by these things, just in America. Uh, Victor, I don't know, how much does this cost to make? Like maybe 25 cents? Victor makes about $30 million a year just on these mousetraps. Pretty good industry. Um, I bought a bunch of them, and I set them all over the place, and um, thankfully for me, so you didn't know this, we had a great Christmas Eve service last year. I went home after the Christmas Eve service, and I set some traps in my car. And um, my family was in town. We weren't going anywhere for Christmas. Everybody just came to our house, and we just stayed there for a couple of days. And so I set it, and about four days later, when our family was packing up their bags and heading out to go back home, I did what you do when you've got mouse traps in your car and a brother-in-law in your driveway. <laughs> I went outside. I got on the gardening gloves. I opened the car door. I looked in the trap, and there it was. I slammed the door. My knees were shaking. I said to my brother-in-law, Daniel, there's a mouse! <laughs> I mean, hey man, do you mind um, just checking? Listen, you gotta do this for me. I gave him the gloves. He goes, yeah, no problem, dude. What, what's the problem? He goes, he grabs, he goes, is this the problem? I go, yes, it's the problem. <laughs> he throws it, throws it away. Now, before you go looking for a more manlier pastor, <laughs> I told you this story because it's a modern-day parable. It's a modern-day parable. You, you may be thinking about me like, Dan, you're a fool. Like, what a fool. To, to, to ignore the problem, to imagine that there was nothing going on, what a fool. To try half-hearted measures, you knew those traps weren't going to catch anything. You were just delaying the inevitable. What a fool. Dad, you, you, you let it go on for so embarrassing long that it actually caused real problems that you actually had to deal with later. What a fool. But um, I think this is representative of a problem in our lives that most of us have, that, and this is the way that we deal with it. I think this story is like a perfect transition, a perfect parable for us as it comes to one aspect where we're tempted in our own lives to ignore the signs, to imagine nothing's happening, to try half-hearted measures, and to just let things continue and persist for so long that it becomes embarrassing. Of course, what I'm talking about is how we handle our money. Maybe this will help you see where I'm going today. The title of this message is this. It's save your cheddar, catch the mouse. That's the title of the message this morning. I'm totally, that's what I got. It's save your cheddar, catch. You just got to poke the person next to you. Just say, hey, save your cheddar, catch the mouse. Would you do that for me right now? Would you just tell them, hey, save, we're going to save the cheddar. We're going to catch the mouse. We're going to catch the mouse. I, I, I think this is a, a real problem for us because Americans today handle money like it's everything we all want. And so we all act like we have it. We lose track of it. And then we're afraid to check and see what the actual state of affairs are in our financial lives. In America, we have an economy that de demands for us to be engaged. We have both a financial economy and a social economy. We live not as mice living in this world, but you and I are in a race in America. We are in a race to more and more and more. We're in a race to get more, to achieve more, to succeed more, to more and better. We're in a race to get as much as we possibly can. We're in a race, not a mouse race, but, but, but you and I are in a rat race, aren't we? 
drives us to go work as hard as we can to buy things that we really can't afford. And you've heard it said that we want to do that to impress people we don't even like. You and I are spending our time working so hard to afford a lifestyle. Why? Because the world has told us you're in a race to get the cheese at the end of the race, and you better get there before it's all gone. And so the world looks at us and yells, run! And so we run. We go as fast as we can. We try as hard as we can. We buy things that we know we ought not buy. We overextend ourselves. And we imagine that there's no problem with this. And if there are, we try these half-hearted measures. But what we've learned is that we've let this go on way too long. It's embarrassing. For us, who are Christians, we, we hear the message, run the rat race. And at the same time, isn't it true, you hear the words of Jesus, almost as if it was divinely spoken into our hearts, saying, don't run the rat race. We hear this tension, this conflict in our own hearts. There's this tension between our culture and our convictions. The Christian's relationship to money has to be and is different than the relationship that the world has to money. The Bible talks about money. Maybe you've heard this before. The Bible talks about money more than it does about faith and prayer combined. Did you know that? You may think, well, that's just a lot of Old Testament laws. Maybe that's just the Old Testament. But I found this to be very interesting that Jesus talks more about money in the New Testament than he does heaven and hell combined. And there are chapters that he devotes to that. Jesus cares about how we handle our finances. God cares about how we handle our finances. Why? Is it because God is a greedy God? No. The Bible tells us that the one that owns the entire expanse of the universe, and our women are going to find out as they jump into Genesis chapter 1, that God created everything. It's all his anyway. He's the richest being in the cosmos, in existence. God doesn't need our stuff. Why does Jesus talk about money so much? It's because money is a direct index to the condition of your heart. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. I just put this on the screen for you. Jesus says this. He says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moss nor rust nor mouse destroy. Sorry, I just added that part. Where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, look at this. For where your treasure is, there your, everybody say it with me, heart will be also. Our hearts are tied to our treasures. How you measure your treasure is the exact measure of your heart. And there's a direct correlation. It's a perfect gauge. How you are growing in your maturity or your walk with Jesus is directly connected to how you spend your resources. And this morning, I want to walk us through three traps. I, I think in the rat race of life in our American world, we have three traps that can catch us on the way to uh, getting the cheese at the end of the race. Three things that uh, if we fall victim to these attitudes, we will be trapped and our hearts won't be completely God's. And so I want to um, find the wise ways to handle money. And if we're talking about wisdom, we're talking about Proverbs. Um, we want to kind of reprise our Proverbs series from June here just as a special one-time thing today. Uh, and I want to look through a couple of the Proverbs for us to be able to see how God, his word gently instructs us to keep from being enslaved because of our resources. Super practical message today. 
I hope that God will speak to your hearts. Let's jump in at Proverbs 27, verse 23. If you're taking notes, I've got about uh, 12 to 16 references that I'd love for you to write down over the course of this message and study a little bit this week on your own. The first one is Proverbs 27, verse 23. It says this. It says, Know well the condition of your flocks. A lot of shepherds in this room, right? Um, Maybe some of you have chickens, maybe some of you have animals, maybe some of you just have lots of cats. Not going there. You hear, know well the condition of your flocks. It's, a, it's an agricultural, it's a shepherding metaphor. It says, give attention to your herds. Why? Because riches do not last forever. I think the first trap that we might be prey to fall into is the trap of simply Neglect. So many times in America, so many times what we are prone to do in our race to the top is to simply neglect our finances. If you take your eyes off of what God has given you, this is a trap that will take you down. Here's what the proverb writer says. He says, know well the condition of your flocks. If you take your eye off of it, it describes a person who lives with this thought process. Well, there's money in my account. How, how much do I actually have after all the bills are paid? I don't entirely know. But here's what I do know. My bills are paid. There's gas in the car. There's food in the fridge. The kids are clothed. Hashtag winning. And um, if that's how many of us live, uh, many people, you ask them about their plans for the future, if they can afford what's coming around the corner, And most people, they haven't given attention to their herds enough to know if their herd is going to survive the winter. They might even feel spiritual for saying such things, for not knowing how much money they actually have. They would justify it in their own hearts, saying, see, I'm not trapped by money. See how little I care about it. But that is spiritualizing a behavior that the Proverbs calls foolish. It is foolish for us to ignore or neglect our finances. This proverb gives us a picture of the shepherd charged with caring for the sheep or the cattle. This shepherd has a cushy job, has plenty today. And isn't it often true when riches come, the temptation is to neglect your sheep? To imagine that you can take it easy, that you can coast for a little bit, that you've got enough, you, you don't have to worry about that anymore. But the caution is obvious. Riches don't last forever. Essentially, the proverb is saying this. You're never wealthy enough not to budget. You are never rich enough to take your eyes off of your finances. So what does God want from us? God doesn't want negligence, but God wants management. God doesn't want us just to neglect it. God wants us to manage it. The proverb says this. It says, no well the condition of your flocks. I used to watch that show Shark Tank. It kind of had its day in the sun, but you remember that show. Investors would, or uh, entrepreneurs would pitch a product to investors, and if they did a really good job, they would get money. And it was always the investors who knew well the condition of their flocks. It was always the entrepreneurs who knew their numbers who got money handed to them. God says that's a biblical principle. If you know and you manage your resources, more resources will be coming your way. God tells us it's a basic principle of life. 
We should look at these verses here. I'm going to rifle these off for us. Proverbs 6, 6 says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. This is a picture of managed diligence. Proverbs 30, verse 25 says, The ants are a people not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. Also, we see here, Proverbs 10, verse 4, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. And the sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. What does wisdom tell us? Wisdom tells us that people who manage their money are wise. To manage means to direct or plan or to purpose. And I think most people think, well, if I'm getting low on money, I'm just going to work more hours. But without a plan and a purpose for the capital that you're creating, you're just going to work more hours, which is a pattern that's destined to continue until you're working as many hours every single week that you possibly can. And the money that comes in will still not be managed. Proverbs 23 verse 4 says, A wise person knows when to stop working. So better to know well the conditions of your flock so that you can make wise, disciplined decisions. Friends, don't assume there's not a mouse in your financial car. Don't assume that everything's okay, that the signs that you're seeing in your life are symptomatic of something else other than a problem. You may be surprised if you start to manage your money what you find that has been stealing your cheddar. So what are we going to do? We're going to stop imagining that we're wealthy enough to neglect our finances, and we're going to understand that the people in the world with wealth are actually those who manage money wisely. We're not going to neglect it. We're going to manage it. We're going to sit and evaluate our spending habits. We're going to find our income streams. We're going to set our future goals, and we're not going to be afraid if we find a mouse in our numbers because we're going to deal with it. Because to save your cheddar, you got to catch the mouse. That's what wise people do. They don't neglect it. They manage it. That's the first trap, neglecting your resources. That's what Proverbs tells us. Don't neglect. Don't neglect. Don't neglect what you've been given. Second trap that I see here in Proverbs as it talks about money is a trap that, if we're all honest, this is the one that I think most of us struggle with. It's the trap of consuming it. Consuming it. How do most people handle their wealth? They eat it. They drink it. They use it all. Have you ever gotten a raise and on your first paycheck been so excited that you went out and spent all of it? This week I was um, talking with a friend here at our campus. He's a, uh, got a really good job, and he was telling me a couple of years ago he had gotten a promotion at work. And just in a moment of vulnerability and honesty, we were sitting across the table at lunch together, and he goes, he goes yeah, I got, a, I got a raise. And do you know what the first thought that I had in my mind was? I should go buy a Rolex. He goes, I don't know why that was a normal thought for me. I, I just kind of thought, you know, I got a raise. I deserve it. I can afford it. You ought to start uh, acting as if you have the money you have. And so I started researching all these watches. He told me this. He goes, I was sick of watches that go click, click, click. He goes, I wanted one so badly that just moved smoothly. That was life for me. In the midst of researching all these watches, um, he couldn't find the courage to pull the trigger, which was a good thing because a couple of months later, the job dried up, and he was in a different financial situation. His words to me, glad I didn't buy the watch. 
because wise people don't consume everything we have. This is what Proverbs 21 verse 20 tells us. It says, the wise have wealth and luxury, but fools spend whatever they get. We're living in a world that wants us to turn our minds off and just consume. Buy my product, buy my store, buy my beverages, buy my fashion, buy my lifestyle, buy, buy, buy. And listen, as your pastor who is concerned for your soul, I need you to know and I must tell you that the sheer inertia of all the money dollars spent on marketing and advertisement in this world to capture your attention and to turn your behaviors towards spending money are so insurmountable that you will not live in America for long before you buy the trap of consumption. You cannot overcome the immense forces that are up against you. You can't do it. If you only think about money as a tool to honor yourself by, you will consume every dollar that you earn. But here's the scary part. You'll actually consume more. The average person in America today is carrying $6,741 worth of credit card debt. Average. That means the total credit card debt across America divided by people is 6741 If you take out, I read this on another statistic, you can correct me if I'm wrong later, but uh, if you take out the people who pay off their balance every month, that number skyrockets to people who carry a balance on their credit card, that, that number goes up to almost $9,800 per account. Money that is paying for things that we don't have the money to pay for. The sad reality of this statistic is simply this thought. In a crowd this size on an average Sunday here in the first service, we have about $1.6 million worth of consumer debt represented in this room and about $3.2 million of consumer debt represented at our campus. And friends, if that's the cheese at the end of the race, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a rat. Too many people in this position of debt, they really love consuming things. They know that there's a problem, but they don't want to change. They're afraid of what they'll find. They're afraid of what the numbers are. They think the numbers are too scary. And so they try half-hearted measures, like uh, cutting up half of the credit cards. They imagine they'll cut one product out of their lives. How many people have gone on a Starbucks diet thinking that was going to save their consumeristic behaviors? So they try to kill the mouse without having to look at it, and they buy a half-hearted trap. This isn't what wise people do. Now, the wise people understand that their money isn't meant for them to just consume. They live with Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 at the core of their heart. This is a key verse for all of this morning. I want you to see this. I want you to write this down. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9. It says this, honor the Lord. Actually, can we say this all aloud together? Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. Yes, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. The wise person does, doesn't consume their check on themselves, they consider the Lord. In one sense, this is an appeal to 
what's typically been called tithing. It's what we did in our first offering, the giving back to God what he's given to us. But there's another practical sense of this verse that I think we need to consider in here today in addition to just giving to God. I think to honor the Lord with our wealth is to handle it his way. So what does God want from us? He doesn't want us just to consume everything, but we're going to see this. He wants us to bank it, to bank it. It honors the Lord when we are wise stewards. Look at what this says from a few Proverbs here. Proverbs 28, verse 25, it says, A wise person banks on the Lord first for riches. It says, A greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. A wise person banks with savings. Look at this, Proverbs 21, verse 20. Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling. That's interesting. Precious oil and treasure are in a wise man's wise man's dwelling. But a foolish man devours it. A wise person banks on honest business practices and not shortcuts. Look at this. Proverbs 15, verse 27 says, Greed brings grief to the whole family, but those who hate bribes will live. Finally, a wise person banks on love, not luxury. Proverbs 15, verses 16 and 17 says, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs. That's really good for some of you who are um, gluten-free and vegan. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is. A family that's gathered around the table and they can't afford the filet mignon, but they love each other no matter what. And so regardless of what they're eating, regardless of what they're consuming, because there's love there, because money hasn't taken the place of love, it's better to be in that family than which one? Than than where the fattened ox is and hatred is with it. So to love the Lord with your wealth is to trust God to supply, to have savings, to be honest in business, to enjoy what we have in love rather than be luxurious at the expense of our families. And so yes, to honor the Lord with our wealth is to present to him the tithe and the offering. But what it also implies is that we do not consume the first portion of our checks. To be very practical, when Pastor Steve taught this message at the Crown Point campus, he gave a couple of guidelines because he could tell people have asked this question often, Pastor, um, okay, so what does this mean practically? And I want to tell you that these guidelines are not written in stone in scripture. These, following these guidelines or not following these guidelines will not get you a higher place in heaven. They're guidelines. They're what wise people do. Uh, the word tithe, it literally means tenth. And so uh, that's a really interesting study. I would encourage you, if you hate this idea, to go into your Bible this week and study it for yourself. Ask the question, what happened to the tithe and does God still want us to do it? I don't have time for this. This is not a message on tithing, but you can study that this week. So a tenth, it means 10%. And so scripture tells us that we ought to give God our first and our best. That's what first fruits. And so we give 10% to God. Proverbs seems also to advocate the ant life, the storing away, the diligent life, the content life where we are pushing some back for rainy days. And we'd say 10% should go towards savings, which leaves you with 80% to live off of. The question is, are those hard, fast rules? The answer is no. And Kristen and I, in our seasons of our life, we've given way more than 10% of our income to the church, and we've given way less than 10% of our income to the church, depending on how the Lord had provided for us. Yet, the principle 
is how does your heart relate to money in a way that honors the Lord? Are you giving to him? Are you saving in wisdom? And are you living off of 80% in contentment? These have served us well as good guides. I don't know anybody who lives off of these principles who's never had, who's ever had lack. Why? Because these principles have a sense of honoring the Lord, not ourselves. So friends, what are we going to do? We're going to get our eyes off of ourselves and remind ourselves that God is the one who we ought to honor with our finances. We're going to stop spending money like we don't have it on things that we don't need to impress people we don't even like. We're going to bank on God for riches. We're going to develop a savings. We're going to not look for shortcuts because half-hearted mousetraps don't catch mice. We're not going to consume everything. We're going to bank it because we're going to trust on God and honor him. That's the second thing. I think the third thing is this. In our rat race of life, we often find ourselves in, with its competing values over Christ and his kingdom and Main Street and its kingdom, there's one more trap for us, one more rat trap for us on the rat trap of life. The first is to neglect it. The second uh, is for us to uh, simply consume it. The third is to obsess over it. You can take this too far. And if you obsess over your finances, you may not have a heart that is trusting the Lord, but you may have an addictive personality that's addicted to trying to control your life through your own financial management. I found for every person that has no idea how much money they do have, there's another person who is obsessed with how much money they don't have. They're on a constant quest to find their success. They work like mad, they come home, and they come, they're tired, they're under a weight of expectation, and their hope is in a better existence. But really, you see this person's heart, the obsessive heart, when a neighbor comes home with a new car in the driveway, or the neighbor moves to a nicer neighborhood, and you're left there in the old neighborhood. Even worse, God forbid it would be your brother who comes home with a nicer car than you or moves himself and his family to a nicer neighborhood than the one that you live into. People who have an obsessive heart, who are obsessed with how much money they don't have, cannot be joyful for the good blessings that God showers upon other people. People who have an obsessive heart, they may not explode in outrage and jealousy, but in tear, inside, they crumble in despair. And you watch these people go through the stages of grief. It looks like this. Stage one is just simply shock and disbelief. I can't believe John bought a Tesla. Then they move to stage two, expressing emotion. I'm so tired of my car. I wish my car would just die so I can get a Tesla. Then comes depression and sleepless nights, and then the bargaining. God, would you just make my company successful? Would you just help me get ahead? Would you just help me do whatever it takes? I want a Tesla. Go to Africa if it's what it takes. Bargaining gives way to guilt. It's really my fault that John got a Tesla. I was the one that told him about it anyway. Guilt turns into resentment. I hate John. Who does he think he is anyway? This Tesla. You get the picture. It's possible to obsess over money that you don't even have. 
To borrow some wisdom from Solomon in Ecclesiastes, he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10, he says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. I don't often recommend tattoos, but I recommend that one. He who loves money, who is obsessed with money, will never be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. And this is also vanity. The idea of vanity, it's a soap bubble that gets popped. That's not what God wants for us. Obsession is a vicious cycle, an unceasing vortex of dissatisfaction that devours our joy. The moment that I felt like Bill Murray in that movie that I can't name, trying to kill that mouse, I, I knew something devilish had been activated inside of me. It consumed my thoughts and my dreams, and in doing so, it robbed me of truly enjoying the things that were happening all around me. This is what obsession does. And if you feel like your joy has been stolen from you because of how little money you have, you have an obsession problem. That's how you know you're obsessed. And God, listen, listen, God never designed wealth as the prize to obtain, but rather a tool to bless others with. What does God want from us? He doesn't want us to obsess over it. He wants us to bless others with it. This is how God designed us to honor the Lord with our wealth. Not to just consume and, and to, to obsess over, but to look at others and to manage it and bank it and then bless with it. Finances, they're not for our own joy. They work best when we bless them for the joy of others. When we focus our own finances on our own obsessions, that's never enough. But when we focus our finances for the benefit of others, they become a blessing to everyone. And a couple of verses to back this up. Proverbs verse, chapter, 11, verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 11 says this. It says, wealth gained hastily will dwindle. You know what that is? Wealth gained hastily? Those are the shortcuts that we can take in business. Those are the money that we put down on our lottery tickets. Those are the nights at the casinos. Those are money that we put out on the line to gain more money. If you've ever heard the beautiful horror stories, I call them beautiful horror stories because they prove the point so well, of people who win the lottery, this verse has been proven more times than not. That wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little, whoever works diligently and just puts their hand to the plow and does the things that they're called to do will increase wealth. How about this one, Proverbs 11, verse 25. A generous man will prosper. He who gives away, he who gives away money will prosper. And he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. Proverbs 23, verse 4 says, do not toil to acquire wealth. Listen, guys, some of you need this so much. Be discerning enough to desist. You know what that means? Know when to stop logging hours. Working 80 hours a week is fine for a season when the plant burns down and it's all hands on deck. But God never designed you to work at the expense of the other joys in life that he wants you to enjoy. But if I don't work enough, Dan, if I don't make enough money, then I won't be able to enjoy it. Well, know when it is wise to desist. God doesn't want us to obsess over our money. He wants us to use our money to bless others with it. 
I think when we bless others with our wealth and we don't obsess over our wealth, we avoid two of the common errors. I, I think two false gospels, so to speak, when it comes to Christians and money. Here's the first one. The first gospel that I think people believe foolishly, even though I can see more merit in this one than the other one, the, 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 the false gospel here is, the, is that some Christians treat wealth like it's a disease. Some people think that it's immoral to have money. There's nothing wrong with living below your means. Actually, that's a wise person does that. Saves and only lives off of 80%. That's called living below your means. But it's when we claim something that is amoral to become immoral that we've put ourselves in a position of judgment over things that we have no business judging. When we see it as something bigger than it actually is. And when we impose our beliefs upon other people as a measuring stick of their faith, we become pharisaical. That means that we become hypocritical Christians whose faith is not in the finished work of Jesus Christ, but whose faith is in how poor we can actually be. And that is a dangerous thought. These types of people would have criticized Peter and John for having successful fishing enterprises. They would have scolded Lydia for her manufacturing firm. I think they would have even taken Abraham to task for all the wealth that he accumulated on this earth. And I think these people will be surprised when Abraham is in heaven throwing the most lavish, luxurious party. God is not against you having wealth. It is not a sin to have resources. It's a sin that your resources would have you. But I think the other side of this, if this is the poverty gospel, I find this to be a little bit more convincing, but it still falls short. The other side is very seductive to us. It's what we call the prosperity gospel. It's this idea that God has given you everything you need for life and godliness, and God will give you all the finances and richest blessings in the world if only you have the faith to ask. If you watch a preacher on TV, I beg of you, turn them off and come to church. <laughs> because you don't know what's behind the ask that they have for the blessing. If you ever hear words like, send me, do you want the blessings of God? Send me $25 and we'll pray a prayer over you. That, my friends, is called a scam. And if you want to save your cheddar, you got to catch the mouse. What do wise people do? Wise people don't put their hopes in poverty or prosperity. Wise people learn to be content with whatever it is that God has given them. Wise people understand that all we have and all we need truly, truly is in the person of Jesus who offered us the forgiveness of our sins and puts us on this path towards loving him. Wise people know that the symbol of our faith is not a ladder for us to climb, but a cross for us to bear. Wise people know that the end of the rat race is not the cheese. The end of our Christian life is a crown. Glory because of our great God. Wise Christians don't fall victim to the trap that money is everything. So what are we going to do? 
Well, we're not going to neglect it. We're not going to consume it. We're not going to obsess over it. We're going to pray this prayer that's found in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. I, I don't have a better verse to end on than this one. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9 says this. Look at this prayer. This is a prayer for something that you've probably never prayed before. It says this. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Just think about that for a moment. Give me neither poverty nor riches. We're used to give me neither poverty. <laughs> God, I don't want to be broke. Help me not be broke, God. Provide for my needs. I'm begging you, God. Help me not be broke. We're not used to that um, second one. Uh, give me neither poverty nor riches. This is a prayer that if we would put this in modern day terms, it would be just simply, God, would you make me middle class? Why? Well, because when I'm like that, God, you feed me with the food that is needful for me. Isn't that sound like Jesus who said, give us this day our daily bread? I want to get from you this food that I need. And if I get from you this food that I need, if, if, if I get that, or, or to put it the other way, if I have to provide my own food and I am able to point to the food on my table and say, I got this because I'm so wealthy. Look at what's going to happen to me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Because God, I know in my riches heart, I might be prone to the lie of self-sufficiency where I don't think I need Jesus any longer. So don't make me rich. Because I don't ever want to be in a place where I don't need you. But don't let me be poor. Lest I be poor and resort to stealing and profaning the name of my God. Doesn't that sound like Jesus too? Lead us not into temptation. I know pastors talking about money often seems out of place. My heart for us in our church is that we would be generous people that can with our wealth reflect the generosity of our God. It's, an, it's interesting to me the way that Christians think that we're going to go about changing the world these days with a lot of policies and presidents and politicians. Last I checked, our faith wasn't in Washington. Our faith was in heaven. And so the leadership of the cosmos is safe and secure, friends. Do you know the moment that Christians have always had their most significant influence on the world? It's when we've used our wealth to honor the Lord. It's not when we've used our wealth to buy into political action committees. It's not when we've used our wealth to gain influence on local boards. It's not when we've used our wealth just to make our own kingdom successful or our own churches bigger. The moment that we've always had the greatest amount of impact is when the church was using its wealth to build cathedrals, using its wealth to build universities, using its wealth to build hospitals, using its wealth to adopt children into homes that could not afford adoptions, using its wealth to put clean water in places in the world where there is no clean water, using our wealth in ways that the other people in the world would never imagine using their wealth to be so completely counterculture that when the world yells at us, run the rat race, we say, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm not neglecting my money. I'm managing it. 
I'm not consuming everything, I'm banking it. I'm not obsessing over what I have or don't have. I'm choosing to use what God gave me to bless others in his name. And friends, when we do those things, it truly can be said of us that wise people honor the Lord with their wealth.